I just have a, a few announcements I wanna wanna begin with here this morning. Uh, I trust I'm on here. Um, just uh, you can look at your bulletin for your parents. Oratorio is coming up here just in five, six weeks or so. Have your children memorize things. We go to the nursing home and uh, quote scripture, poems, fun things, whatever for them. Um, also next week's time change. Okay, time change next week. Um, if you forget, let's say I'm trying to think, we're springing ahead, so you'll just get half a sermon next week. So, if you go. so maybe more of you will, will come next week and forget, that's fine. I'll have that in the weekly word so you remember as well. Um, also, we have a potluck after service today. If you're visiting with us or if you didn't even know, well, stay for lunch. If uh, you're thinking about going, stay for lunch and uh, then you go home, uh, all lunched up with your kids. It'll be a wonderful time afterwards. Uh, Rob's going to be here. I know the Woodhouses are staying, and uh, you just get a chance to speak with them if you would like. Well, I know your Bible's naturally open to the book of Hebrews. That's where we have been for the past, I don't know, four months or so in mid-chapter 6. But today, I um, wanted to take a, a one-week break. I knew that just with the, the testimonies of the safe families that my time today was going to be a little bit shorter I uh, wanted to uh, adjust that and want us to look at Luke chapter 15. So you can turn there. I want to look at the parable of the, the prodigal son. It's a, a well-known parable. I, I know that, but in recent weeks, really, my, my heart has been stirred afresh in this parable. Um, really seeing the wonders of God's grace, seeing the depths of my own sin in a new and, and fresh way. And just wanted to share that with you. I mean, this, this is coming from a, a burden in my heart that just I want us to hear, want us to reflect upon, want us to, uh, to be, and you might say, well, the prodigal son, I know that story, Steve, and well, you might, and I'm sure many, most of you do, um, but may it be a, a fresh look this morning at this parable. I, I know that what, the things that stirred me are, are twofold. One is a short movie clip I, I put out before you in the Weekly Word, uh, a site called modernparable.com. Any of you been there at all? Modern parable, some of you have. I uh, would encourage you. Modern parable, what they do is they take a parable of Jesus and kind of just do a film montage. And uh, I thought about even showing you this parable on the prodigal son. Um, really, really powerful. And just kind of put some things into focus that you're like, wow, I never really thought about that, but very helpful. Prodigal son is one of them they did. They did several others. And I uh, just encourage you. We've done that with our family. Just family worship time. Actually, at dinner time is what we did. We pulled up a computer, a laptop right in front of the dinner, and said, hey, guys, here, let's, let's kind of watch this. And it, it prompted spiritual discussion uh, at dinner time for us. Uh, it was very, very good. Second, um, it was a book my, my dad sent me. You know, he sends me books a lot, all the time. And uh, here's, here's a book he sent me, a oh boy, some time ago. I'm not sure, I don't know, six months, eight months ago. I finally got around to reading it after looking at that video and just said, wow, it's called The Prodigal God. Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith by Tim Keller. Just, just really helpful, just exposing even my sin to myself as being a, a pastor and very, very helpful to that. And so, as we come to Luke 15, it's really a burden to my heart. I trust that the Lord will give us a fresh look at this well-known parable. Luke 15, let me begin verse 11. Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate <clears throat> that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. 
And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost, has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came, he approached the house. He heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him, and he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to me, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This parable has three characters in it. There is the father, there is the younger son, and there is the older son. The father, of course, represents God, and the younger sons represent people. The, the, the sons represent people. The younger son represents the sinners who go their own way and do their own sinful deeds and come back. And uh, the older son represents the righteous people who are lost as well. And so by way of outline, I want to ask three questions of you, one question per character. Just may God stir our hearts. At the end of the message, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And uh, just a great text is great to prepare us for that. How we, how we view Christ and how we view His sacrifice, and so you can prepare your hearts for that. Point number one. Here's my question to you: Is your God like this? Is your God like this? One of the things we look at when you see the the Father's parable, there's some things perplexing about His actions. In terms of human behavior, we might even call this Father a bit foolish. For instance, think about this. His younger son asks for the inheritance and his father gives it to him. I think about if the father had gone around and asked advice, hey, listen, you know, talks to his, his buddy and says, hey, my, 
my son has asked me for his portion of the inheritance. And, uh, I mean, you know the character of my son. He's kind of rebellious and kind of, but, but he's asked for his inheritance now. Well, I, should I give it to him? I don't think there would be anybody that this father who was wealthy in some measure, I don't think there's anybody who would have said to him, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, go ahead and give it to him. He's going to waste it all anyway, but that's fine. Give away your wealth. I don't think there's anybody who would have done that. And so I think the father, against all counsel, gave his son these things. Is that what your God's like? Different than us. God is different than us. Think about asking for his inheritance now would have been an insult to his father. Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your inheritance. But how about you just die now and give me your inheritance? It's an insult to the father. The son's behavior would have been predicted. Anybody who saw the son knew that he was a wayward guy, knew that he was a rebellious guy, because it says here, even in verse 13, not many days later, after all the estate was sold, I mean, this could have been a several-month process. As a real estate was being sold, the father put that out. Hey, what are you doing? We're doing this. And, but once, once everything was gathered together, Almost immediately, several days later, the younger son went on a journey to a distant country, squandered his estate with loose living. I don't think anybody was surprised what this younger son would have done. And yet, knowing all this, the father still gave his wealth to his wasted son. That that his father had worked hard to establish, he gave it away only to be wasted. Now what wealthy man would do that? But think about this. When, God, when Jesus chose to depict God in some manner, He depicted God in this manner. He let His sinful son insult Him. Let His sinful son waste His hard-earned resources. And we just say, boy, what strange behavior is that? But that's what God is like. There are many people in this world who insult God all the time, and God just shines His grace and His favor upon them. Jesus said that God causes His Son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's often called by theologians common grace. It's God's kindness to all, even those who are rebelling against Him. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all His works. Even when rebellious against the Lord, his kindness still comes. When Paul spoke with the idolaters in Lystra, he said it this way, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And how many people do you all know who are rebelling against the Lord this day and yet you look at their lives and they party and are happy and live in the abundance of possessions that God has provided for them. How many people do you know like that? A lot. That is the prodigal father, the prodigal God. And such was the case of the prodigal son. Just poured blessings upon this man. He let the father let him go away like God often does. See, God isn't one to curtail every form of wickedness that our hearts desires. Sometimes like the father in the story, yeah, insult me, that's okay. Want everything I give you, take it for yourself, go your way. 
And we look at it in the form of a parable. We think that God might be about foolish about this. But such is God. Such is God. Is your God like this? You say, why is God like this? Here's why. It's because He's very wasteful in His mercy. He wastes His mercy upon many. It's not a, if I extend mercy, they'd better come back to me. No, it's God extends His mercy. He's, he's just abundant in mercy. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. God doesn't always give us what our sins deserve. Only to be sure, if you don't repent, God will give you what your sins deserve. Death. Eternal death. But He doesn't give it right away. He's often merciful and withholds His wrath. Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. They ate the fruit and they didn't physically die that day. Oh, there was certainly some death in them. But the fact that He allowed them to live was His mercy. And God does that all the time with many people all around the earth. His grace covers, with, covers creation. And I say, do you see it? Is your God like this or is your God like yourself? Careful about wasting your mercy. Oh, this person has wronged me. I don't think I can share my mercy back to them. That's how we are. But God just abundantly wastes His mercy all over the place. The story is often called the story of the prodigal son, and rightly so. The word prodigal simply means wasteful or lavish or to be a, a reckless spendthrift. One who just spends without, without sealing, like the prodigal son was, but it's every bit about the prodigal God as well, like Tim Keller called his book, The Prodigal God. It's the wasteful God. From our perspective, God seemingly wastes His mercy. He wastes it when He gives His son the inheritance, and He wastes it almost when He receives him back home. Look at verse 20. The younger son came back, returned to his father, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran up and kissed him, embraced him and kissed him. Without a word, the son's just pouring his mercy and compassion upon him. Doesn't even wait for the son to say anything. Just his returning is enough. And then almost, when uh, the son starts to speak, the the father almost ignores it. Right Here's the the rehearsed speech that... uh, but the son says, verse 21, Father, I sinned against heaven in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. And so, like the father says, okay. But the father said, quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Bring, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Right? Restore him to prominence. Back to where he was. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. It's almost like, you know what? That, just your coming back was enough for me. I don't, you don't have to pay him anything. You don't, and how often are we like that? Well, if they apologize to me, then I'll apologize to them. Just a hint of a step. Mercy and grace lavished upon this son. Fully restored, expensive party, joy coming home. Let's not lose the point because the climax of the other two stories here in Luke chapter 15 have this same thing. When the shepherd goes to find his lost sheep, finally finds it, he says in verse 6, Rejoice with me, I found the sheep which was lost. When the woman found the lost coin, it says here in verse 9, Rejoice with me, I found the coin which I have lost. And here also, right? Come rejoice with me, have a party. And the point is the same that Jesus brings. I tell you, verse 7, that in the same way, just as the shepherd rejoices over the sheep, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
And so likewise with the coin. Jesus again interprets it for us. Verse 10, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the peril here is, is tantamount as well. It's that I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God when sinners come back and repent because He loves to lavish His mercy. Parties, joy all around. And we're called to rejoice in Him in this way. And I just say, is your God like this? Is He abundant in mercy? Is He lavish in grace? Is He bound in loving kindness? By the way, where the truth be told, I think it's somewhat the mercy of God that brings His Son home. I think the Son knew that His Father was gracious. If, if, if His Son was over here and knew His Father to be hard and vengeful, I don't think He would have come back. I think but He knew He had a, a hint of mercy I think he underestimated his mercy. He's thinking, well, dad will probably bring me back as a servant. That'll be okay because I've wasted it all. So he knew some of his mercy. He didn't have any idea what the mercy of God was entirely like. Is your God like this or is he so smothered in wrath and disappointment and judgment upon you that you never see his mercy? This parable is all about the mercy of God even to those who spend their lives their own pleasures. God's merciful, let them go their own way rather than destroying them. God's merciful in bringing people back and receiving them. And, and I say, church family, let us think rightly about our God. Let's think rightly. He wastes His mercy. And may such thoughts of God fill our hearts and minds and cause us to rejoice in the same way because there are many who don't get it. There are many who don't see His mercy. There are many in the church that don't get it. May we get it. Well, my next question. Are you a younger brother? Are you a younger brother? When we think about this parable, we often focus upon the younger brother, and rightly so. I mean, he is the one that, that really shows off the mercy of God. He's the one that went off, gathered the inheritance, went off distant country, squandered the estate with loose living, and only when everything was gone, nowhere else to turn... Did he turn to his father? It's just a great story about the, the lostness, right? The lost sheep. It's out there someplace and the shepherd finds it. The lost coin, it's in the house someplace and it's found. Here's a lost son out there someplace and he finally comes. And I love how Jesus paints the, the bankruptcy of this man's life. One point he was rich and now he's poor in poverty. At one point he was waited upon as the, the son of this wealthy man had servants to help and now he is a hired man. At once he was surrounded, the, the chosen nation, the Jews, but now he is a servant to foreigners. Do you know about the Jewish context, that would be hard. And lowest of all, he was herding pigs. To a Jew, that would have been unfathomably awful. Pigs were one of the most unclean animals. Perhaps the most unclean of the unclean. Forbidden to eat, much less take care of. And, and then, then the lowest heights even more, he longed to eat the pig slop. Have you ever seen pig slop before? The corn ground mush. Have you ever tasted that before? I've never. Maybe next time around my uncle's place who raises pigs, maybe I'll just take a, take a dip of that and that'd be a great sermon illustration sometime. Yeah, I tasted it and it was so awful that I just had to throw up, you know, or something. I don't know. But he was longing for this. So hungry. But finally, by God's mercy, he came to his senses, verse 17. He began to think rightly about his life. He said, verse 17. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger? 
I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and went to his father. That's repentance right there. That is repentance. Saw his sin. Saw his lost estate. Knew he didn't deserve anything from the father. Was humbly coming before God, willing to serve as a servant. And he came back. And in God's incredible mercy... The father accepted him back. Not as a servant, but fully restores his son. He puts the robe on him. He puts the ring on his finger as if he's come right back into where he was when he left. That's a son. Now this is the story of some of you. I've heard your testimonies. I've heard how you've strayed. I've heard how you have sinned. I've heard how low you've been, whether it's been drugs and alcohol. I've heard those testimonies from you. Whether it's in sensuality and immorality and pornography, I've heard those testimonies from among you. Whether it's in idolatry or materialism, I've heard those testimonies. Whether it's depression or in anger, I've heard those testimonies. And you've been entrapped in those things. And you've hit rock bottom. You've been brought to an end of yourself on the the brink of divorce and the brink of depression. And then you've turned to Christ and God has forgiven you your sin and brought you back. And your life today is a testimony of the mercy of God in your life. You know, if we take the time, I can say, hey, how about you, how about you come up here and just, just tell us your testimony. And, and all of you could sing with John Newton, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Right? We just go around the room and I could ask you to come up here and just say, what were you like before? You know, the REITs, I could ask you to come up, and the Pargats, I could ask you to come up, right? And we could just, just, just go around, all of us, and, and, and we just say, I once was lost, and God is found by His amazing grace has found me. Are you a younger son? Maybe you were a younger son. Now, it may just be the case that you're here today and are a younger son right now. Oh, you're not in a faraway country, but you're lost here at home. Children, perhaps some of you are rebellious towards your parents. Just know that as you resist and argue your parents, it's just a symbol that you're resisting and, uh, resisting and arguing against God because your parents are the authority that God has given. They are delegated authority. So you rebel against them, you're rebelling against God. It's a manifestation of how lost you are. Would the truth be known, some of your children said, I want to get far away from here as possible. And would you have the resources and ability? You'd be gone. And Jesus says, right, if you think of adultery in your heart, you're guilty of committing adultery. And some of you, though, you may never sin like the younger son. Maybe thinking about that in your heart, wanting to do that, makes you just as guilty. Children, maybe there's some sins your parents don't know of. You're hiding it. But if you were free, you'd be gone in an instant. Parents, maybe you're here Sunday morning just to show. Maybe there are things going on in your home that are reflective of your true heart. This week, my, my world was rocked. I heard of, I was talking to another pastor in town. There was someone from our church who went to that town, went to that church, and he was among us. And he said, did you know he got saved? I'm like, what? Everything on the outside looked good. Heard him even give a testimony, but there wasn't. It wasn't good. And that might be the case for some of you. I don't know. You look good to me. Anyone can fake a pastor out. You just tell me what I, I want to know. You just tell me what you want to tell me. 
but there might be some other things. And, and, and you might just lack the boldness and courage and the peer pressure that you can't overcome to do like the younger brother did, but maybe, maybe that's where you are. You might just say, well, I can't do that because what would others think of me? Well, you're being constrained by God's common grace around a testimony of community. But, but your heart of hearts maybe is gone. I just say, you might be a younger brother here at home. If it's you, I just call you to look long and hard at this younger brother and know this, that God is merciful. And you will find abundant, abundant mercy at the cross of Christ. How much better you stand than the younger brother. The younger brother just got maybe a seed of a hope that maybe my father be merciful to me, I could be a servant. But you have the promise of Scripture. You believe in Him. You will be a son. You will be a, a fellow heir with Jesus Christ, but believe in Him and just trust Him. That's way better than either this younger son was. You have a, a tremendous promise. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have the promise that we'll have rest in Jesus. So come to Christ. Experience His mercy. But now my third and final question this morning is this. Are you an older brother? Are you an older brother? I think of all these questions, this is probably most important. I, I think Rock Valley Bible Church, we understand the mercy of God very well. I think we do. I, I work really hard at that. We work really hard at the cross of Christ. I, I, I think for the most part we are church folk and not so much in the danger of being younger brothers. Those, there may be some. But I do think that this is where our probably our true danger lies. I know it's where Tim Keller really helped me this past week. This is the main reason why Jesus told the, the parable to ask, are you an older brother? Look back at verse 1. He says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus had this run-in with the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, and they were degrading his ministry because he, he would never associate with the sinner of this world, something that he would, he would, they would never do. But he's associating with sinners. He must be one of them. Because we would never do that. And so Jesus, when he tells these parables, particularly this parable, it is addressed to the Pharisees. He's not, he's not addressing the sinners with this. Look what it says in verse 3. He told this parable to them. Who's the them? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. He was trying to teach the Pharisees and scribes, who, by the way, are representative of the older brother. The younger brother are representative of the sinners and the tax collectors who Jesus was eating with. They were the ones who were lost and need to be found. But the older brother is the righteous people who would never touch those sorts of sins. So catch this. So it's the older brother in this story is told to pierce the hearts of, of the religiously proud who also need the mercy of God. I think the whole point of the prodigal son is the second part, starting in verse 25. Um, you know, this lost sheep only has half the story. Lost coin only has half the story. But the prodigal son has both sides of the story. See, there are two sons. One represents the sinners and one represents the Pharisees. And I just say, most of us have the tendencies to be like the older brother. I know I do. And the younger brother. So let's, 
Let's just trust God. May You help us now to, to show us our sin where we see it. Now, some of you have been the younger brother. Some of you have been off, off that way. But I fear that years of church life can turn us into older brothers pretty, pretty easily. Can. The sin of the younger brother is obvious to all. I mean, when we think about sin, we think about younger brother sins. We, we think about drunkenness and drugs, and we think about sexual immorality and homosexuality, and we think about abortion, and we think about being away from a worshiping community, right? Not attending church, and we think about rebelling against parents, and murder, and rape, and prostitution, and perjury, and theft, and lying. All those kind of younger brother sins, those are the sins that are really bad. And it's right for us to think that way, but there's another sort of sin that's a little bit more subtle the sin of the older brother. His sins aren't external. His sins are difficult to identify, but they are every bit as real as the younger son's sins. The older brother is the faithful one. I mean, he's always around. He's always dependable. He's done everything he asks of him. He's always at church meetings. He's always there. Never does anything wrong. In fact, even if you look at his testimony... He speaks 29. I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. These are people who obey God in every sort of way. They say, look at us. Look at how good we are. The problem is they trust in their own righteousness. That's where the temptation arises for them. And that was the problem for the Pharisees. Luke 18, verse 9, the Pharisees trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And that's why they were so angry with Jesus when He was associating with sinners and eating with them. Because they thought, they don't deserve to hear the grace and mercy of God. We're the righteous. We deserve the blessings of God. Not those people. Why would you go to them? They're not obeying. We're obeying. We should get it. And maybe you can see there a little bit of the selfishness. And when the younger brother came home and his father began to show mercy upon him, it angered the, younger bro- the older brother. Just like the Pharisees were angry at Jesus for reaching out to the sinners. Verse 28 says that the older brother was not willing to go in to join them in the feast, nor were the scribes and Pharisees willing to go and sit down and eat with the sinners. The parallel there can't be lost. Why was the older brother so angry? Because he never received the treatment from his father. Look at verse 29. I want to say this now, I think, in the tone that the that the older brother probably said this thing. Okay, it, it says there that um, he was angry. Verse 28. Think about an angry man. An angry man who didn't want to obey his father. This may have been the first time he disobeyed. We don't know. Disobeyed externally. Think about an angry man. His father in his mercy, verse 28, pleading him to come in. I'm sure it came with grace and gentleness. And then the son said something like this. Look! For so many years, I've served you. I've never neglected any command that you've told me to do. And you've never given me a young goat that I might share with my friends. But this son of yours, who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, 
You come and you kill the fattened calf. I'm the righteous one. You see a problem? I think so. But in his eyes, did he see problem? He saw no problem at all. I trust you see what's happening here. The older brother, because of his righteousness and faithfulness to the father, comes to expect that God will give him everything that he wants. He wants wealth just as much as his younger brother does. Only he thought about getting it in a different way. The younger brother just says, give it to me. I'm going to put my sin out in the open. The, the older brother's a little bit more tricky. <laughs> he says, uh, I'll just be righteous. I've got all this control. I've got there everything. And, and who is dad to give away this wealth? I believe that the older brother was righteous for the blessings. He obeyed his father because his father then would give him good things. He was righteous because he thought that such action was the best way for him to receive kindness and wealth from his father. He wasn't interested in the giver. He was interested in the gifts. Very subtle. I love the book that John Piper writes. The title of it says, God is the Gospel. He tells a story in that book. If you arrive in heaven and all your friends are there, and you have eternal bliss forever and happiness, and Jesus isn't there, would that be heaven to you? You need to think about that, because it may just be that you worship God because of the blessings you give. It may just be that's what may... God, I thank you, right? The athletes, I thank you because you gave me the ability to be glorified and to score this touchdown. Or, God, God, I thank you because you gave me this job so now that I can be wealthy. And so oftentimes we can love the gifts rather than loving the giver. And, and this passage here is a call for us to love the giver and not merely the gifts in and of itself. I, uh, I included a story in the Weekly Word this past week. Um, some of you may have heard it. It came right from this book. I talked to Yvonne about it a little bit last night. She says, Steve, I, I didn't really understand that story. And so um, it was, was kind of, maybe now it's in context. I guess I was reading this book in context. It makes all the sense in the world. Let me just tell the story again. If you just bypass it and just sit off, that's, I don't need to read that. So let me just show you the riches of the weekly word so that you read it every week as I send it out. All right? Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot so he took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So he turned to go. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? And so the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. 
He bowed low and said, My Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect to you. But the king discerned the nobleman's heart and said, Thank you, took the horse, and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, and so the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. Does that make sense? Jared, it doesn't make sense. Let me explain it for you, Jared, and for others it doesn't make sense. Because it's got to be clear. The gardener had this carrot and out of love to the king just gave him this carrot and the king saw his love to the giver. And the giver then said, boy, I'll give you more because you love me. But the nobleman only wanted more gifts. He wanted more horses. And so he gave the back stallion to the, to the king hoping that, oh, I've got this corral. I'll give you all these horses to take care of. But the nobleman didn't really love the king. The nobleman wanted more horses. Does that make sense? And so that's why he gave himself the horse. And so often our Christianity can be like that, like this older son, who's just in it for ourselves and all that we can get. And you can even see here how he's trying to manipulate his father in that. And I just say, let's learn from the older brother. That is our tendency. That is my tendency. Let's not be righteous for ourselves. Because if you're righteous for yourself, it ruins everything. Now certainly there is joy and there's happiness and there's blessing when you love the giver. Let us not become so infatuated with the gifts that we miss the giver. And I say that when you're righteous and if you're proud of your righteousness, you're on a dangerous path. I remember when I was in high school thinking, oh, I'm this star athlete, and I'm also a Christian. I've got all these things going for me. Yes! No! I've missed it. And I know those still tendencies are still with me today. Well, you know what? I, I want to I close my service by uh, my message this morning before the Lord's Supper by just reading a, reading a chunk of this book. Uh, um, I can do no better than what Tim Keller's done. Maybe I'll give you a heart for him. He's a, great, he's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City doing a great, great work. And um, I just want to read you some of this book that's really pierced my heart, and I trust maybe God will use it to pierce your heart to really put to articulation some of the things I've tried to say, but he says it much better. He says, What did the younger son want most in life? He chafed at having to partake of his family's assets under his father's supervision. He wanted to make his own decisions, to have unfettered control of his portion of the wealth. And how did he get that? He did with a bold power play, a flagrant, a flagrant defiance of community standards, a declaration of complete independence. What did the older son want most? If we think about it, we realize that he wanted the same thing as his brother. He was just as resentful of the father as was the younger son. He too wanted the father's goods rather than the father himself. However, while the younger brother went far away, the elder brother stayed close and never disobeyed. That was his way to get control. His unspoken demand is this. I've never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things in my life the way I want them to be done. The hearts of the two brothers were the same. One's more obvious and one's more subtle. 
One's easy to detect, one's hard to detect. And I think the harder one, as we see that, is more dangerous. The hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get in a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled. But one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart and both were lost sons. Why was the older brother so angry with his father? He feels that he has the right to tell the father how the robes of the rings of the livestock of the family should be deployed. In the same way, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control Him, to put Him in a position where they think that He owes them. Therefore, despite all of their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against His authority. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey Him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, he may be your example. He may even be your inspiration, but He's not your Savior. You are serving your own Savior. At the end of the story, the elder brother has an opportunity to truly delight the Father by going into the feast. I mean, what does the Father want? He wants Him to join. And He's an opportunity to help the Father's joy. But His resentful refusal shows that the Father's happiness had never been His goal when the father reinstates the younger son to the diminishment of the older son's share in the inheritance, the elder brother's heart was laid bare and he does everything he can to hurt and resist his father. Jesus does not divide the world into moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the Father cares for them and invites them both to come back to join the feast and His love. This means that Jesus' message, which is the Gospel, is a completely different spirituality. The Gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not moral, moralism or relativism, it's not conservatism or liberalism, No, it's, it's, nor is it somewhere halfway along the spectrum between the two poles. It's something altogether different, is what he says. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong. And everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this. By contrast, the elder brother brothers divide the world into two people. They're the good people like us, and the bad people are the real problem with the world are out there. And the younger brothers, even though they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing. They say, no, it's the open-minded and the tolerant that are in and the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world. They are out. But Jesus says the humble are in and the proud are out. Do you see that's the difference in the older brother? If he was humble, he'd be in. But his arrogance keeps him out. And i got one last paragraph I want to read. And then uh, we'll close and celebrate the supper together. When, when a newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world? The Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton reputedly wrote a brief letter in response. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That is the attitude of someone who has grasped the message of Jesus. What's wrong with the world? 
I am. Let's say that together. What's wrong with the world? I am. Let's believe that and embrace that. And my, my hope this morning is that you're not a younger brother. My hope this morning is that you're not an older brother. My hope, my heart for all of us, that you would be a humble brother who rejoices in the mercy of God. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this story which we have heard. I pray that this fresh look would stir us again at the gospel of Christ. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to your mercy that you save us, O God. And in that, I pray that we as a body would rejoice. We'd rejoice in the cross of Christ that, that diminishes our pride because it sees how much our salvation costs, that we could never buy it and accomplish it for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, as we, as we go to Lord's Supper yet again, once more, I pray that you'd show us the cross of Christ, show us his blood, show us his pain, show us how there it's where the wrath and love of God meet, that we might be stirred afresh in love to him, in love to Jesus for redeeming our souls. I pray even now you'd cause us to examine ourselves as I have this past week and just see even tendencies in me of being an older brother, of, of thinking, God, I, I, I'm righteous and doing what you want, and why? Why don't the blessings abundantly come like they come to others? And God, I, I pray that you'd, you'd teach me just to be a humble servant, one who who expects nothing and just says, I'm a servant and gives all glory to the giver. And, and I pray as you've convicted our hearts today, I pray that you would expose them where they are. For younger brothers, I pray that you'd call them to yourself. For older brothers, show us our sin. And may we always be humble brothers. So God, I, I pray even as your word says that we would examine ourselves this day. If there's known sin that we're harboring, maybe there's pride or maybe there's something I've convicted people of. Uh, I pray you'd grant them repentance now that they might take of the supper in a, in a worthy manner. So help us, O oh Lord, even to commune with you and to think once more the death of Christ who has redeemed our souls. I thank you that you've loved us and you've released us from our sins by your blood. And may today be a time of rejoicing in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.